Brahma Chaloka Dipati Sampati Katanjaliya Hiwaram Ayachata Santi Dasata Parajaka Jatika Dese Tudamam Anukam Pimampajam Namo Atasa Bhagavato Arahato Asama Sambhutasa Namo Atasa Bhagavato Arahato Asama Sambhutasa Namo Atasa Bhagavato Arahato Asama Sambhutasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami Uh, well, uh, I think my favorite part about retreats is uh, seeing how interesting human beings are. We're a f- we're never a boring species, you know. It's quite, and uh, it's just interesting to to see what we make of life, and uh, you know. It's funny how it works, because our bodies are basically no different than the trees outside, or the rocks, or the lake. It's essentially the same molecules. And when it all comes up together, and we get a a human body, and then we get a human brain, and then we get all the functions of the human brain, and consciousness, and... um, The jitta. And I I don't know for sure, but I kind of suspect that the birch trees out there aren't like suffering existential angst. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, I don't know for sure because, you know, I'm just projecting and interpreting. But, you know, it is... Like if there's just one tree on an island, does it feel like, oh, I'm so lonely... I don't know, or um, you know, if, if does the lake kind of wonder, am I full enough yet? Uh, is my water warm enough, or is it too cold? And I mean, even lower, lower uh, animals. You know, I've just wondered about it sometimes. There was one time where I was I was staying in the Czech Republic and I I just had a little hut and in front of the little hut was a big field, a big grass field, and I would just do walking meditation in this grass field. The grass was long, but I was just walking back and forth and and get a nice flat straight path and. Um, there were a lot of moles in the area. And so every day a little, you know, I'd go out there and there'd be a, like a, a, a mole tunnel. Uh, 
know, kind of raised earth going across the path. And and then I do my walking meditation and kind of say, sorry, and I just trample it down. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd be walking over, I'd trample it flat. And the next morning I'd come out there and, and it, it was raised again, a little tunnel <laughs> across. And this would happen every day. And I was thinking, you know, I wonder what goes on in the mole's mind. Does it actually get angry? Or is it like fuming underneath the ground? <laughs> you know, this monks, Buddhist monks, you know, I work so hard every day and they just thoughtlessly trample my tunnel. Or, or maybe they, maybe they're just underneath the ground thinking, you know, this is not fair. Life is not fair. You know, I do my work. I make a tunnel. Um, you know, why has life treated me so unfairly that my tunnels, my tunnels, collapse every day? I don't know. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe the mole thinks that, but, or maybe not. Maybe the mole just, uh, you know, it's just like gets up in the morning to, oh, oh, dirt. <laughs> and just digs, 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 and that's all they do is just, you know, the kind of function of life is just digging, happily digging. And then if a tunnel's collapse, it's just, oh, no problem, just digging, digging, digging. Uh, and maybe they don't suffer, you know, how much does a mole suffer if uh, if they have to re-dig the same tunnel every day? And then uh, as animals get more evolved, um, I think the sense of uh, dukkha, suffering, does sort of elevate uh, with higher species. I'm not one to glorify the animal realm, although I love animals. You know, they suffer too. And I think even um, even though they're just doing their thing, acting by instinct, or you know, in some ways are. are Kind of very in tune with their surroundings and their environment and in harmony with it. Still, from what I know, from what I see, or, or like Kajin Piak when he talks about what goes on in, in a jungle animal's mind, he says, well, there's still a lot of suffering there. You know, there's there's um, hunger and there's fear and there's worry. Um, you know, there's desires, there's... You know, Basically, kind of a lot of the stuff that that uh, human beings work with, and then uh, we get up into human being level, and you know, even though you know life's just life, uh, still it's amazing how we can create suffering in our own minds. And it's not that there's anything wrong with us because it's happening. It's just, hey, this is part of what means to be human. It's funny how it works. You know, and for, uh, for a mole, it's like dig, dig, dig. For a human being, it's like me, me, me. <laughs> or, you know, we're just elements, mental and physical elements, and yet 
How is it that sometimes we can think that these elements aren't good enough? Or it should be different, or I wish it was different. I wonder if the mole ever thinks, you know, gets up in the morning again and sees that uh, the tunnel has collapsed and think, I'm hopeless. <laughs> my life's a mess. <laughs> Where's my life going? Every day I dig and dig and it gets nowhere. Nothing comes of my life. I'm a failure. <laughs> um, I, you know, maybe it does. I don't know because it's underground. I can't see. Well, you know, I wonder if the trees ever kind of think, you know, nobody loves me. The loggers just come and they cut me down. No one appreciates me. No one values me. And yet, how is it that sometimes these thoughts can crop up into human minds? And even in the minds of sometimes very competent people, very lovable people, and very, you know, generally healthy, well-balanced people, we can still have these thoughts sometimes. Human beings are curious creatures. And then we get involved in Dhamma practice and the bar gets set even higher. So, well, not only, you know, well, we can place the bar sometimes so high that we always feel inadequate because unless you're a fully enlightened arhat, you're not there yet. <laughs> unless, you, unless you're completely free of all traces of impurity in your stream of consciousness, you're not good enough, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, if we look at it from that perspective, then it's a pretty hard position to be in as a human being. So it's good to, to just look at how we relate to being human and what we might expect out of life or hope for out of life. Or hope for out of Dhamma practice. You know, I know, I know many monks or nuns who have, you know, started off with a lot of dedication and enthusiasm and and really, you know, putting their heart into practice. And then, after 15 years, they're like. I don't feel I've gotten anywhere. <laughs> and it's easy to feel discouraged. But how much of that is actually just our own pers perspective, you know? Because usually if we, if we have an honest look, or if we ask other people what we were like 10 years ago or 15 years ago before we've done a lot of Dhamma practice, 
you know, they can recognize change. Or if we're honest with ourselves, we can recognize change. But how uh, quickly change comes, how quickly we transformation comes, all of that's just out of our control. It is based on what we call barami, which is a, a general term for the wholesome qualities and the strength of the wholesome qualities that we bring in to this life, which would be based on past lives, or even just based on what we've done prior to coming in contact with the Buddhist teaching. And it's based on a whole range of other conditions. So you know, how fast the results come, in many ways, are really just not our business. And you know what we can do you know, is we, we, we plant this tree and if we plant it in good soil, that's nice. But sometimes we don't even have good soil. You know, we plant it in whatever soil that's on our property. And then we can water it, you know, if it needs watering. And we can try to protect it from bugs organically, of course. <laughs> and um, we can try to protect it from moles and gophers. Know, organically, of course, non-violently. And possums. There's nothing you can do about possums. <laughs> but, you know, if you go out there and you try to pull on the tree, you know, what happens? You kill the tree. It doesn't help. And it's like, grow faster, man. I've been waiting. I want a big shade tree. I want a great big Bodhi tree, and you're pulling a little Bodhi sapling, and it's like, pull too hard, and you uproot the whole thing, and you have to start all over again. So what we can do is, is fertilize it, and that's where all the crap in life comes from. <laughs> yeah, it comes in really handy. Yeah, so you take all the crap in life, and uh, you put it as fertilizer around your little sapling. and. And um, that really does wonders for the soil. And the worms love it. The worms come. It helps to uh, keep the weeds away. So those things we can do. You know, there's certain things in Dharma practice which are our business and within our realm of at least the illusion of control, which are things like um, fertilizing, you know, putting forth effort. Um, planting something properly, understanding uh, how to plant, how to plant a tree. And you can't just you can't just throw it in the hole in the plastic bag, which you know some people have done that in our monastery in New Zealand. We have these community planting days. Well, we we did in the beginning until I saw what happened. <laughs> <laughs> we have these community planting days. A lot of enthusiasm. Great. Everyone loves to plant a tree. Go out there. Um, big holes. We sometimes find trees that were actually planted with a plastic bag still on. <laughs> or sometimes, what well, um, you know, the, the ones that are easier to discover ones, they, they dig a hole and then put the tree in there, and the, it's still in the plastic bag in the hole. They haven't buried it yet. 
So you have to know enough about Dhamma practice to be able to plant your tree right. And then according to causes and conditions, say, well, some people have got great soil and plant a tree that's from really good stock and it's like, someone like uh, Ajahn Biak or some of his uh, other Dhamma contemporaries who are now well-known meditation teachers, Ajahn Anan, Ajahn Dan. Um, I mean, some of these Ajahns, the very first time that they sit down to meditate, their mind goes into very deep samadhi and jhana. And so they're starting with a really good species of tree. And even for them, it's a lot of hard work. You know, Ajahn, Ajahn Piek, I mean, from the time that he was... Um, initially uh, started to meditate and getting interested in the Dhamma, you know, he had really good meditation. But at the s- still, you know, when he was a young monk staying with Ajahn Chah, he would still have to work really hard. You know, just hours and hours of meditation and, and, and doing lots of walking meditation and you know, getting up early and staying up late. Um, and that's something which is within the realm of what we can do. It's just putting forth effort. And and really, that's something we have to do because uh, it doesn't just happen by itself. There's a certain amount of just you know, allowing things to settle, but there's a certain amount that uh, things will really start to happen when we put forth effort in the right places, in the right way. So once we're, once we find the the right way to put forth balanced energy, then it's just a matter of quantity, and the more the better. And eventually, you know, the heart's got to get pure. I mean, no matter how thick it seems our kilesas are, uh, or how dull our heart is it's just a matter of time really you know, in, in proper effort um, you know even the Buddha was once a um, very unenlightened being all of the great meditation masters were once um, people pretty much just like us and just through their own effort, really, they've been able to transform themselves. So I think that's good to remember. Sometimes we get into the retreat and feel like, oh dear. You know, if it takes a hundred thousand lifetimes, then it's fine. It's not a problem. It's not really our business to to ask when the results are going to come, or how quickly they're going to come, because we can create unnecessary suffering if we do. Just saying. 
Um, can we be content just with putting forth effort? Just with, just with the process. If we can be really content and happy just with the process of sitting, meditating, allowing the mind to calm, developing a continuity of awareness, stuff comes up again and again, over and over, sometimes same story over and over, or different story but same background music <laughs> over and over. And then it's like, well, you can look. Uh, am I practicing correctly? Because sometimes it just takes um, persistence to kind of stick with it and things will change. But also you can go at it with wisdom and see now, okay, am I stuck here or am I just on a plateau? You have to kind of watch watch how practice is going because when we learn things you know there are times when we get on plateaus and it feels like nothing's changing nothing's improving what happened well that that is just part of how we learn as well kind of go up and get a little plateau you feel frustrated what happened to that progress I felt like I was making progress before and then and then suddenly you get to kind of a leap so, oh, that feels good. And then get on another plateau. Now, the plateau is you just have to kind of stick with it. And uh, let's see, you know, am I still practicing right? Am I still practicing correctly? Am I doing anything wrong? Yeah. If everything seems to be right, then it's just a matter of uh, persistence, sticking with it. But it's no use just banging your head against the wall either. If it feels like, oh, this isn't working, then, well, use your creativity. Try something else. Go at it from a different angle. So, well, where am I stuck? You know, if there is uh, suffering there somewhere, or stuff keeps coming up, then you know, what is it that I'm holding on to? Try to isolate it. Try to get it right down to you know, what is it precisely that I'm holding on to and there are some things that we're holding on to and once we discover that we're holding on to them then um, we may decide we're not ready to give them up yet but at least we know that and we're clear about it or there might be times where we kind of isolate, okay, well, this is what I'm holding on to, or this is what I'm afraid of, or this is kind of what's behind my, my, uh, my existential suffering. And, uh, and once we can isolate it, it's like, poof, it sort of dissipates because uh, we've, we've pulled the veil from around it. And see, well, well, actually, if I face it with a sense of courage, then uh, it's not such a big thing after all. And, you know, a lot of things are like that. You know, if we just face it with a, a certain courage and sincerity, 
you're not kind of a macho courage, but just a, a willingness to face something directly and look it in the face and say, I know you, Mara. This phrase comes up again and again in the suttas. I know you, Mara. Especially when the Buddha was practicing for enlightenment. And you, you know, when he wasn't enlightened yet. Or even sometimes after. But especially when he wasn't enlightened yet and he was practicing in that way. And Mara, the, uh, the epitome of the kind of a mixture between God and the devil in Buddhist cosmology would always come and try to figure out ways to keep the Buddha in samsara keep the Buddha from getting enlightened and he was he was pretty tricky and when the whenever he tried something with the Buddha though the Buddha would just see him directly and said I know you Mara and just that knowing, like that clear knowing, was enough always to make Mara disappear. As soon as Mara knew that the Buddha saw him, then Mara became embarrassed and just, oh, he sees me. And he went back to his uh, heavenly abode. So there are times where if you can isolate a fear, then it's good just to um, challenge it. Does this fear really have control over my life? You know, we're, we're not just um, pieces of styrofoam on an ocean being pushed this way and that by waves. You know, if we, if we, uh, if there's a fear, then we can look at it and say, oh, I'm not going to let you control my life forever. You know, and sometimes just little simple things, like, you know, you're afraid of mosquitoes, Afraid of mosquitoes, just go out there and sit outside. <laughs> in short sleeves, in shorts, and just sit outside. <laughs> I'm not afraid of mosquitoes. One of the uh, nasty things about being in a Thai jungle are these little leeches that you get sometimes. They're little land leeches rather than water leeches. And they're only about an inch long and quite thin initially. But <laughs> but uh, they can uh, they can get as thick as my my little finger, you know, when when they get full. And then they put this anticoagulant in and so you're bleeding and bleeding and then it just makes a big mess. They don't hurt so much, but they're kind of uh, gross. 
fan. There's, I don't know, there's not many people who have an instinctual love of leeches. Who <laughs> say, I love all animals. I love leeches. There's sort of a boundary there. You know, even if they love dogs and cats, when it comes to leeches, it's... Mm. But I was staying once on, um, in a national park in Thailand. You know, just in my uh, my gloat with my umbrella and mosquito net, and I was right on the edge of a field. But I had sprained my ankle, so I, I I was kind of stuck there. And I initially, it was quite a good place, but then it rained more, it rained more, and it became more and more damp. And the more damp it became, it was like um, the boundary of where the leeches were just kept. <coughs> coming closer and closer to my gloat until it encompassed my gloat. And and there were just lots of leeches around where I was staying. And because I had this sprained ankle, I couldn't really pack my things up and carry them to a different location. And I don't know, you know, I, I tried to develop kind of loving kindness the leeches. May the leeches be happy. <laughs> yeah. They seemed to be happy that I was there. Why could I not <laughs> respond with an equal enthusiasm? I don't know. I felt quite kind of limited in my love for the leeches. Um, they would always be very cheery in the morning, kind of waiting for me outside of the skin bed. Morning, Chandigo. <laughs> they what they do is they they get up on one end and kind of stand in the wave. It's a bit like a antenna. They're trying to pick up on the warmth. They're gonna, and you can kind of you're gonna see them. They're all outside of my mosquito net. You know, like this. Just waiting. They know there's some warm blood in there. And... Uh, you know, I, I did quite a bit to try to minimize the contact with the leeches. But it was a bit of a pain in the butt, and I I decided, well, let's just get over this. Let's just get over this uh, aversion to leeches. So I said, yeah, okay. It's In the Middle Ages, hey, they considered it healthy. So let's just go out and feed the leeches. All right, so I just, I one day I decided just go out, just stand there in the place, kind of a wet ground area, and I just decided to, just to stand there until there were no more leeches coming. And so I just stood there, you know, watching them, and they're all kind of pretty excited, kind <laughs> 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 of coming from different directions, and and. Uh, just watching them, and they'd kind of crawl up and attach sometimes in the toes or the ankle or crawl up on my shin. And if they got up, like past my knee, I said, well, I have limits. <laughs> it's important to set boundaries in life. And that was my boundary for leeches, knee, knee, nothing above the knees. So I said, you know, push them down. Below the knees, okay, fine. And... You know, I just stood there and watched, and um, as I was doing that, it was, you know, sometimes the reaction would come up. 
you know, that, uh, well, either is a sense of uh, not wanting it to be that way. It's like, oh, kind of, kind of gross. Or, um, or even feeling, well, you know, is this a silly practice? <clears throat> but each time I would just say, never mind, never mind. Just, I'm going to uh, get over any sort of aversion to leeches. And uh, it wasn't the leeches so much, but just the whole process of, I don't know, some being coming and treating me like a, like a supermarket, <laughs> a food source. Uh, I kind of perceive myself as something higher than that, a higher <laughs> life form than a food source. But for them, that's all I was. And uh, so, so I just stood there and, you know, just with patience, patience. And in the end, it was no big deal. It's like, okay, leeches come, they suck. And <laughs> that's why they say leeches, they really suck. But they, some of them were just so greedy. It was disgusting to see, <laughs> right? And some of them, you know, they wouldn't, they get, they drink so much blood that they could just kind of roll off my sweat. <laughs> they just kind of go, and then they fall over, and they can't even crawl away. They're just left there on the ground, this satiated little blob. But, I don't know, you know that sometimes you have to do some kind of crazy things in life. <laughs> and I think it's okay. And, and that seemed to, um, I don't know, it seemed to help in some way get over my aversion to leeches. At least, you know, when I you know, fully surrender myself to that fear and then get through it and realize that it was no big deal. I survived. I feel fine. I was able to wipe the blood off my legs. And then it was okay. I mean, it was, you know, and it was fine. And I think a lot of fears are like that. If we just, um, just say, okay, we'll call the bluff of the fear. Whatever fear it is, is a fear of the unknown in the future. Because usually, no matter how um, how the fear comes into our mind, how big it seems, or how real, it um, usually is something that, well, if we just face it, just with a kind of uh, courage, sense of not being afraid to look at it directly, then uh, we find that we can survive. And uh, we may lose a little blood in the process, but that's okay. Just wipe off the blood, continue on.
Fear of death can be a good one. We're talking about uh, facing things. Fear of pain, fear of death. But even fears like this, we can kind of turn into something which is a positive thing. brought a little translation now read out to you this is uh one of Ajahn Fiek's good friends, another disciple of Ajahn Chah, is named Ajahn Dun, and uh, spent one range retreat with him and uh, recorded some of uh, his answers to questions. I had asked him, well, you know, when you're practicing Dhamma, how do you bring up the real spirit of um, going at it with enthusiasm, kind of like a Dhamma warrior. And uh, kind of worked it in with uh, how we relate to death. This is a, a warrior. A warrior is one who battles to overcome his enemies. And as Dhamma practitioners, your enemies are the kilesa, the kilesas in your own heart. And you know, the, uh, the Thai forest ajans will often speak in these kind of martial terms and personify the kilesas. It's almost like there's this um, the battle of the great battle of good and evil takes place in our own hearts and minds between Dhamma and the forces of the Kilesa. To generate the resolute faith that it takes to battle with the Kilesas, you have to regularly contemplate death. When contemplating death, your heart awakens to the fact that this life of yours is not a sure thing. Regularly reflecting that your life is but a day and a night will arouse the warrior spirit. In the depth of your own heart, imagine your own death. And that night was one of those quarter moon nights that I mentioned. And he says, tonight is, is one pra, literally like monk day or holy day. And at midnight, you have to die. Convince yourself with mindfulness and wisdom until there's an acceptance. When you lie down to rest at midnight, you will die. There's no tomorrow. You expire at midnight. So what are you going to do? Hmm? The spirit of a warrior is born. Once we're finished with this meeting, you definitely get out there on your walking meditation path. For sure, you, you wouldn't go just read a book or listen to a tape or fall asleep. You definitely wouldn't do anything else but alternate sitting and walking meditation because you're convinced you will die at the stroke of midnight. 
the Dhamma spirit is born. Past is gone, so there's nothing to worry about. Establish your mindfulness in the present. The future, tomorrow doesn't exist because we die tonight. Thoughts about tomorrow's meal and alms round and where we're going to go the day after tomorrow, they all vanish. Everything ends tonight. The mind won't be able to dwell on tomorrow. It's like throwing a tennis ball against a wall. When it hits the wall at midnight, it bounces back. Throwing the ball stands for your distracted thoughts concerning the future. They just bounce back after hitting the wall at midnight. When attempts to think of the future are foiled, thoughts come to a halt. You can't dwell on anything that would happen after midnight. You can't think of tomorrow's alms round, an upcoming house invitation, or the work projects that you're going to do. All ends at midnight. The mind will stop in the present moment with sustained awareness. You sit and walk meditation without forgetting that you will die. This is how you generate the spirit of a warrior, the Dhamma warrior, the warrior that engages combat with the kilesas in the heart. Contemplating death is very helpful. It cuts off infatuation and delusion. It calms anger and sensual desire. What's the point of being greedy for sensual desire? What's the use of being angry when you know you're going to bite the dust tonight? You've got to purify your heart and purify it in time. But you have to imagine death in a way that your heart sincerely believes. Even though it may not actually happen that you die tonight, this is a skillful means that we employ to startle or wake up the heart. It awakens the fear of imminent death. If you reach your hour of death unprepared because your meditation hasn't been sufficiently developed, you'll have no refuge to take shelter in. If mindfulness, samadhi, and wisdom have not yet been established in your heart, you'll have no refuge. So for the time remaining, it's imperative to practice intensively. The skillful means of contemplating death is key. It can uproot your attachments to your body. You have to find ways to achieve victory over the kilesas in your heart and mind. Don't allow them to persist in your consciousness. Don't hold on to and imprison them. Find ways to let them go and cleanse the heart. It's necessary to let go of those attachments. When kilesas do appear, clean them out. Wherever you go, you're shadowed by the kilesas. Wherever you are, the kilesas are there in your heart. Once this is understood, you incessantly generate mindfulness to care for and consistently look after your own heart. This is to put forth great effort. And the more you do, the more you benefit. Putting forth effort in practice, it's always this 
funny balance between accepting things as they are and not being complacent. And kind of allowing things to fall apart and yet continually building things back up. And when we talk about putting forth effort, there are certain things that we can do to make the most of our time. Like if you're going to do something, even if it's just something as much as um, um, give someone a little gift, a little service for someone, or if you're going to sit in meditation, the attitude with which we do it will it can really increase the amount of the the karmic result the effect that it has on our heart so even if we do something really good if we do it just sort of blandly without thinking much about it then it doesn't have um, it doesn't achieve the the potential that it has to, to transform our heart. So, for example, if you go and you sit meditation and you're, you're following your breath, but just uh, mind's wandering a bit and then it's over and go do walking meditation and kind of float in and float out. Or even if we do something which is really kind for someone else, If we, if we don't, um, if we just do it, it's good karma. But if we approach it with uh, a feeling of, okay, well, I'm going to do this whole thing as an offering to whatever, or the Buddha or the Dhamma. It might be something very simple like three bows to the shrine, which you can either do sort of by rote, or with a little bit of positive energy, or you can do it like um, I place my feet at the head of the Buddha. No, I place. No. <laughs> oh, Wait, did I get that simile wrong? No, no, no. I place. I place my head at the dirty feet of the Buddha, at the soles of the Buddha's feet and uh, out of a sense of respect just that bowing down uh, and so if if we're going to do something good then do it as an offering like a real offering and make that uh, make that very clear in your mind like when you sit down to meditate have a, a certain amount of clarity you know, of what your intention is each time you sit down so you don't just sit down and see what happens, but you kind of you know, sit down and you know what type of meditation technique you're going to attempt to do, all right? At least initially. So, um, so there's clarity around that. The, the intention is very clear, and there's a clarity about the intention of why we're meditating at all. You know, what, what's the purpose behind that? So we keep the big picture in mind. You know? and then the little bits of practice all start to, to fit together 
in terms of how they relate to the whole. We keep the big picture in mind, and then we see that, well, just little acts of kindness that we do for each other, they fit together um, with our general sila and our lifestyle, and then that helps uh, make our meditation more peaceful, and we're meditating to, to develop insight and purify the mind. So having a, a clarity of intention is very important in terms of maximizing what effort that we put forth. And then when we do something, then do it with full mindfulness, you know, kind of keeping that sustained awareness right through. You know, like if you're cleaning the toilets, for example, you know, it's your yogi job, and you just you just keep that mindfulness going right through the whole job. You say, well, I offer this clean toilet to the Buddha. <laughs> or, or say, you know, may the Sangha come and let go of all of their stuff. <laughs> may, may they be purified through this clean toilet. You know, whatever. But, you know, little tricks of mind like that, you can make a, something very ordinary into a Dhamma practice. And so we, you can kind of do this in your workplace as well, even if it's, you feel like, well, I'm just doing an ordinary job. But you kind of turn it into something else. It usually benefits somebody, right? I mean, every, almost most jobs benefit somebody. You know, even if you're a checker at the supermarket, you can say, I do this as an offering to all, all mankind or all person kind. And it sort of transforms the whole thing. And, and uh, so n no activity is wasted. And then when you're through with an act, whether it's sitting meditation or, or three bows or a small act of kindness, then say, well, even the good karma or the merit that comes from that, I'm not going to hold on to that. I offer that back. I offer that back to the universe. Or I offer that to my mother or my father or my relatives. And so that 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 whole um, process then becomes very deeply ingrained, and you know one simple act then can uh, have a transformative effect on the mind. And give yourself credit for the good things that you do do. There's actually a meditation technique called Chaga Nusati, and another one similar called Sila Nusati, where we actively reflect on 
the good karma that we've made, either through sila and upholding sila, or through generosity and renunciation, giving up, and just bringing that up into consciousness. Like for example, we've gone through this process of doing a small act of kindness for someone else. We've dedicated the whole process to to Dhamma. We've done it mindfully. We've given up all the good karma in our minds as an offering uh, to someone else. And then the next day, you can actually remember back, reflect back on that. And that's part of right effort, reflecting back and remembering the good things that we have done in the past and giving ourselves credit for that. And when we do that, then a sense of joy can come up with the good things that we've done. And when we do that, then we, we naturally start to see the amount of uh, good things in our life in balance. Because somehow, especially those of us who grew up in this society, then uh, we may do 95% really good things for other people. Mm-hmm. And somehow we can still just focus on that 5% that is not yet good enough. And to the point where it's just out of balance and it feels like that's all there is in me, is this 5% which is not good enough. And so consciously focusing on the good things that we do in life, it's not selfish. It's not egotistical. I mean, if you approach it in the right way, it's not egotistical. It's just reflecting on the good karma that we've made and feeling how fortunate we are to have the opportunity to make good karma. Not just in the present, but in the past. And all of us in the past have done you know, really good things, loads of good things. And so... You know, even if the present looks bad, then you can always remember, well, at least last week or last year, I did one good thing. (laughs) 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 And then uh, it's much more beneficial to focus on that and contemplate the effects of good karma. You know, it's much more beneficial, and I think it it, it creates, a, especially for us who can be a bit too self-critical sometimes, unnecessarily so, and then it creates a, a balance in our self-perception, where we just realize and admit to ourselves and actually derive joy from the fact that, well, maybe we're not all bad, maybe we're not all hopeless, or maybe they were not just you know, uh, Dhamma failures. Yeah. And uh, when we look at it objectively, I think all of us can see that, well, we're actually, uh, we're actually pretty good people, pretty sincere people, pretty dedicated people. Pretty kind people. So we're all 
pretty fortunate when it comes down to it to be able to gather together in a group like this in a very safe environment where there's not a whole lot of distractions where we have a warm and gracious host and we have a wonderful lake and trees and rocks who aren't suffering from existential angst <laughs> and we have uh, the opportunity to practice meditation for the purpose of purifying our heart. We have this opportunity to practice the Dhamma. So, it comes right down to it. We've all got a lot going for us. I'll offer this for your reflection. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.